0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We uh, missed last week. I just got in back in town, and things were a little bit crazy around here, so I hopefully we'll get back on track uh, with Fanny Crosby's memories of 80 years. And it is written by Fanny Crosby, and there is no copyright on it. And we are on chapter 11: Contrasted Events: Not many months after the visit of General Scott. Vague rumors of the spread of Asiatic cholera came to our ears. By autumn, the dread disease had swept over Europe, slaying its thousands and putting the inhabitants of the infected cities into a panic. The winter of 1848 was favorable to the spread of cholera. A mild, damp, muggy atmosphere prevailed, and the physicians in our city began to predict that we were certain to be visited by the terrible scourge within the year. In 1832, our land had been stricken with cholera. And I remembered well the sad reports that reached our little hamlet at Ridgefield from week to week. For many months, while the black cloud now seemed to be hanging over the defenseless towns of America, we hoped that we might be spared from its ravages. But I think the cholera reached New York in March or April of 1849. At first, it was confined to the lower part of the city where the authorities tried vigorously to stamp it out. Meanwhile, endeavoring to keep the matter as quiet as possible for fear of unduly alarming the people. One morning in June, Mr. Chamberlain came running into the office. He was so excited that we thought something dreadful had occurred. I followed him and he said, Will you promise not to tell what has happened? I answered in affirmation. And then he unfolded a pitiful story of a man who had been taken from our very midst and how they had hurried him to the nearest hospital, a common cart being the only vehicle that could be immediately secured. But the poor sufferer had died on the way. Then we knew that the disease might enter our school at any moment, in which case we feared a terrible mortality among the pupils, for none of them had left for the summer vacation. On the following Monday, we had our first case. One of the youngest girls was taken. She called me to her and asked me to hold her in my lap, as I had been accustomed to do. Miss Crosby, I'm going home, she said, and I just want to bid you goodbye, and to tell you I love you. Now lay me down again. Towards evening she died, and before sunrise the next morning we carried her to the Trinity Cemetery, where a brief prayer was said, and then, just as the dawn was coming across the eastern hills, our little company slowly winded his way back to the institution to await the next case. Dr. J.W.G. Clements was one of the most skillful physicians that the city afforded. But medicine was almost powerless to check the ravages of cholera, except it was used merely as a preventive. I assisted as a volunteer nurse and helped the doctor make some of the remedies. One of them was composed of three parts of mercury, one part of opium, rolled into pills. I remember that we made six hundred in one day. At the appearance of anything like the symptom of cholera, we administered a very generous doses of these pills, which proved to be efficient remedies in half of our twenty cases, ten terminating fatally. I shudder when I recall those days, for frequently the stillness of the night, while I was watching at some bedside, would be broken by a hoarse cry. Bring out your dead." From some of the city officials as they knocked at the door of the bereaved household. Once, as I was entering a sick room, I struck my foot against an object, which I instantly recognized as a coffin awaiting the morning burial. When the 4th of July came, Dr. Clements and Mr. Chamberlain insisted I was to go to Brooklyn for a short rest, but at the end of three days I was summoned back to the institution to welcome, with the customary poem the great irish temperament advocate father matthew and the brief sojourn of a grand old man in our midst was like the visit of an angel to a house of death daughter are you from ireland he asked after i had warmly praised the deeds of his countrymen and their struggle for independence no i was obliged to reply but i love ireland then the kind of patriot of temperance laid his hand reverently on my head and his touch seemed to me like that of a saint who had been permitted to lay his abode in heaven for one single moment to cheer the desolate children of earth. Not many days after his visit, I felt I had some symptoms of cholera myself, and during the day I walked about a great deal and took a large quantity of the cholera pills, for I was well aware that yielding to the disease practically meant death. Yet I did not tell anyone of those around me lest I should frighten them. But I excused myself at six o'clock, saying I had been several nights almost without any sleep. And after a good night's rest, at eight the following morning, I awakened to find myself in perfectly normal health. When, however, it became known that I had been in danger of the disease, there was a hasty consultation, after which Mr. Chamberlain announced that I was to leave for the country on the 1st of August. So I left the sorrowing city which had been almost depopulated by the departure of all who could possibly retire to a safer place, until the frost of November should kill the epidemic. There were two new cases at the institution after I left, and three deaths. But about two weeks later, the 20 pupils who remained were taken to Whitlockville, New York, for the rest of the summer. In late October, the mayor of New York wrote a very beautiful letter, asking his scattered people to return to their homes, because the danger was past. And so early in November, our little family were again united. But I leave these sad events and now turn back almost 10 years to 1839 and the class meetings at the 18th Street Methodist Church. Some of us used to go down there regularly, and on Thursday evening of each week, a leader came from that church to conduct a class in the institution. In those days, I was timid and never spoke in public when I could possibly avoid it. And I must confess that I had grown somewhat indifferent to the means of grace. So much so, in fact, that I attended the meetings and played for them on the condition that they should not call on me to speak. But one evening, the leader brought a very young man with him, and he was destined to have an important influence on my life. He was Mr. Theodore Camp, a teacher in the city schools, and a man noted for his generous public spirit. From the beginning of our acquaintance, I found him a true friend. I used to consult him concerning all matters in which I was undetermined how to act. And in 1845, he was placed in charge of our industrial department. And then we used to attend class meetings together, but he never urged me in religious matters. And yet I owe my conversion to that same friend, insofar as I owe it to any mortal. By a strange dream, I was aroused from the comparative state of indifference. Not that that dream had any particular effect in itself. "'except as a means of setting me to thinking. "'It seemed that the sky had been cloudy for a number of days, "'and finally someone came to me and said that Mr. Camp desired to see me at once. "'Then I thought I entered the room and found him very ill. "'Fanny, can you give up our friendship?' he asked. "'No, I cannot. You have been my advisor and friend. "'How could I do without your aid?' "'But he replied, "'Why would you chain a spirit to earth when it longs to fly away and be at rest?' Well, I replied, I cannot give you up of myself, but I will seek divine assistance. But will you meet me in heaven? Yes, I will. God helping me, I replied. And I thought his last words were, remember, you promised a dying man. Then the clouds seemed to roll from my spirit, and I woke from the dream with a start. I could not forget those words. Will you meet me in heaven? And although my friend was perfectly well, I began to consider whether I really would meet him or any other acquaintance in the better land, if called to do so. The week sped on until autumn of 1850, when revival meetings were being held in the 30th Street Methodist Church. Some of us went down every evening, and on two occasions I saw peace at the altar, but did not find the joy I craved, until one evening, November the 20th, 1850, It seemed to me that the light must indeed come then or never. And so I arose, went to the altar alone. After a prayer was offered, they began to sing that grand old consecrated hymn. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. And when they reached the third line of the fourth stanza, Here, Lord, I give myself away. My very soul was flooded with a celestial light. I sprang to my feet, shouting, Hallelujah! And then for the first time, I realized that I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in the other. But my growth in grace was very slow from the beginning. The next Thursday evening, I gave a public testimony at our class meeting. When I finished, the tempter said to me, Well, Fanny, you made a good speech, didn't you? And I realized once, that this was the old pride returning again to reign in my heart. For a few days I was greatly depressed until a kind friend suggested that I must go back and do the first works quickly, which meant that I had not made a complete surrender of my will. And then I promised to do my duty whenever the dear Lord should make it plain to me. But not many weeks later, Mr. Stephen Merritt asked me to close one of his class meetings with a brief prayer. My first thought was, I can't, and then the voice of conscience said, but your promise, and from that hour I believed I had never refused to pray or speak in a public service, with the result that I had been richly blessed. That is the end of chapter 11, and next time will be chapter 12, Literary and Musical Memories. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.